This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Open up your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. We've been in this series entitled Theological Boot Camp. And, um, you know, when, when the pandemic hit, there was a run on grocery stores. You couldn't find meat and produce, but there was plenty of candy. And uh, I think that's an indicator of actually something deeper. In a time of crisis, in a time of deep need, people go for what they uh, know will sustain them most, not necessarily what tastes the best. And uh, that's part of why we're doing this series, a theological boot camp. Uh, it's entitled, uh, it's intended to be uh, challenging. It's intended to allow us to sink our roots a little bit deeper um, in a time of crisis. It's meat and potatoes, Christianity. Now, some of the passages in the scriptures are easy to read, easy to follow, easy to understand. Parable of the Good Samaritan is a good example. The story is relatable. The plot is moving. The characters compelling. The stories of the Bible are often like that. Some passages of scripture, however, are dense. They make you feel like you're walking through the thick forage of a jungle or wading through waste deep, muddy swamps. The passage of Scripture we're looking at today is that sort of teaching. It's dense. Uh, It's tightly packed. Uh, It will be, I promise you, a workout. We're going to be doing some wind sprints and some weightlifting today with this passage. So let's dive in. Let's not waste any more time. Let's dive in. Martin Luther said that this passage is the center of the entire Bible. The center of the entire Bible. Romans 3, 21 to 26. It, I would say, contains the main message of the entire Christian faith. If you want to know what Christianity is about, we're going to find out. Romans 3, 21 to 26. Let's dive in. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the the passage starts with these two words, but now. Now imagine for a moment that you've got a couple of friends uh, talking in the lobby. You're 50 feet away from them. Uh, You know them really well. You walk up to them, and the first words you hear out of one of their mouths once you get within earshot is, but now. The moment you've heard that, you realize you've jumped into the middle of a conversation. Right? You were not there for the beginning. And you want to know what happened before so you can understand what you're about to hear. That's what's happening with this passage. But now, Paul says, you've jumped into the middle of a conversation. The beginning of it actually starts in chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. Let me read a few verses so you can get the flavor of the conversation we have jumped into the middle Verse 18, for the wrath of God 
is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So, the central point of of uh, the teaching of this block of material that runs immediately before the one we're looking at today is to prove to us that every human being has knowledge of God but has rejected it. And because of our rejection of the true knowledge of God, we have drifted into sin and aroused the wrath of God. This is the fallen human condition. So the fundamental reason God reveals his wrath is that people fail to honor and esteem his name. What did Jesus say was the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Top priority, number one loyalty, supreme passion. But Paul in this section has been pounding the fact that we failed to do that. Now let's remind ourselves what God's wrath is about. Remember at the root of God's wrath is God's love. God always loves the right thing to the right degree in the right manner. This is what it means for God to be holy. He always loves the right thing to the right degree in the right manner. We don't. But even though we don't, God does. So when people don't love the right thing to the right degree in the right manner, God still does. So we put ourselves under the just judgment of God when we fail to love the right thing to the right degree in the right manner. Manner. God's wrath comes out when human beings display disordered love. God's wrath comes out when human beings display disordered love. It brings us into friction, conflict with God because God remains the same. So when we fail to attend to the first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord with your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, we put ourselves under the just judgment of God. So the fundamental reason... God reveals his wrath is that people fail to honor and esteem his name. That summarizes the teaching of Romans 1.18 all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And it clearly presents us with a problem. What is our problem? No one has the righteousness necessary to stand in the presence of God who holds our destiny in his hands. That's Paul's point, and he's been pounding it for dozens of verses. So we get to verse 21, and he says, but now, oh, maybe there's a glimmer of hope. Maybe there's a glimmer of hope. He's been pounding on the problem, 
So why? So we might be accepting of the help that is going to be offered. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, in general, when you see the word righteousness, it's safe to simultaneously think rightness. Rightness. A state of rightness. Now, on the one hand, it can be used in a number of different ways, actually, throughout the, the, the scriptures. But on the one hand, it refers to God's character. God's character is right. It's right. He's just, true, fair, holy, consistent, glorious. God's righteousness is the utter rightness of his character. He is right. To the core of his being, God is right. On the other hand, the righteousness of God can be something that God gives. God gives righteousness as a way of bringing us into a right relationship with him. God gives righteousness to bring our standing before him into a state of rightness. That is seen maybe most clearly in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God. It depends on faith. So here in verses 21 and 22, the righteousness of God is something God gives to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Let's keep reading. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again, Paul is drawing our attention to the universality of sin. There are actually very few things all human beings have in common, but sin is one of them. We are all equal in this regard. We all equally stand before God, sinners, deserving of his judgment. In that case, what's true of one individual is true of the whole group. But in this case, the whole group is all of humanity. Lack the glory of God is perhaps a better translation than falls short. We lack the glory of God. When God created human beings, he made us to be God-like creatures. We were made to image him, to be his likeness. When one human being saw another, they were meant to say, ah, that's what God is like. But we forfeited that privilege and we no longer display the glory of God like we were meant to. Verse 24, all have sinned and lacked the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now to highlight the language, let me read this literally. For all have sinned and lacked the glory of God and are righteous by his grace as a gift. So God brings sinners into a right relationship with him as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, this word redemption is a theologically loaded term. I'll try to bring some clarity to the idea. In the ancient world, 
redemption language was actually very common, and it was frequently employed in reference to slaves. Now, in the ancient world, you might become a slave for a number of reasons. As the Roman Empire continued to expand, whenever it conquered another neighboring nation, oftentimes the vast majority of the population of that nation became slaves within the Roman Empire. Additionally, as a Roman Empire expanded beyond its ability to be able to police it well, you would often have marauding parties hitting this village and that village. They might come in and take your town. There's no law enforcement to take care of that for you. You could be captured, your entire family, and be brought into slavery. Additionally, you might be brought into a state of slavery for economic reasons, There were no bankruptcy laws, so to speak, to protect you. There's no chapter 11, no chapter 13. So suppose you borrow some money to start a business. You lose your shirt in an economic downturn. What do you do? You sell yourself, maybe your family, into slavery. There's nothing else you could do. So many people became slaves in the ancient world as a result of bankruptcy. But suppose you have a well-to-do cousin Uh, 25 miles away, who hears that you have sold yourself into slavery, and not only is this cousin well-to-do, but he's a pretty decent fellow, so he decides to buy you back. He redeems you. He travels a day's journey to where you are serving as a slave. He makes arrangements with your owner, and there was adequate provision under the law for this to happen. So the normal way it worked was the redeemer paid the price money for the slave to a pagan temple plus a small cut for the temple priests. Then the temple paid the price money to the owner of the slave and the slave was then transferred to the ownership of the temple's God. Thus the slave was redeemed from the slavery to the slave owner in order to become a slave to the God. Of course, if you're a slave to a pagan god, it functionally means that you're free. You can do anything you want. It was just part of legal fiction in order to say that the person does not lose his or her slave status, but nevertheless is freed from slavery in the human sphere of things because the price has been paid. The man has now been redeemed. Paul picks up that language and says that Christians have been redeemed from slavery to sin, but as a result of this, they have become slaves of Jesus Christ. In Romans 6, Paul goes and unpacks that. So the imagery of redemption helps us to understand why Paul says we are justified freely by God's grace through redemption. Why? If you're a slave, you cannot purchase your own freedom. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a slave. A slave cannot save oneself. Whom God put forward, Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So this is how the redemption is accomplished. And we looked at the term propitiation in Leviticus and the topic of atonement. Propitiation is the averting of God's wrath and us being made favorable to him. We are objects of wrath But through the death, the propitiating death of Jesus Christ, we have been transferred from being objects of wrath to objects of God's favor. How? The blood of Jesus. And we sing that truth here when we sing this song in Christ alone. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. 
For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. To be received by faith. So Paul is saying faith is the means by which the cross of Christ averts God's wrath and makes us favorable to him. This was to show God's righteousness. Now this this righteousness is God's internal quality of rightness. So Paul has shifted slightly in how he's discussing this. This was to demonstrate. The cross, appreciating death of cross was to demonstrate God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That is, he had not penalized those who had come before the church at this time, at the time of this writing. The sin of human beings, he had not penalized, he had passed over that. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time, again, the quality of God's rightness, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's absolute profundity in verse 26. Absolute profundity. And I need to pontificate on that for a little bit. Follow me. I'm going to hit two ideas repeatedly in order to try to drive this home. There are two propositions that must be true if God is completely and thoroughly righteous. Two propositions must be true if God is completely and thoroughly righteous. The first is this, because God is righteous, he must maintain supreme regard for himself. Keep in mind, this is the tri-personal God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who has always been in a state of infinite happiness and perfection. Because God is righteous, he must maintain supreme regard for himself. The second proposition is because God is righteous, he must love his image bearers. Two have to be true if God is going to maintain his righteousness. So let me me back up. If, If loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength is the first and greatest commandment, to allow those who fail on this point to proceed without accountability is a failure on God's part to show supreme regard for himself. In other words, to let sinners off the hook completely is a failure on God's part to express his essence. And his being represented in the first and greatest commandment. Taken further, for God to let sinners off the hook completely is for God to cease to be God altogether because it's a denial of his essence and being. If loving neighbor as oneself is the second great command, then a failure on God's part to show love for his image bears is a failure to demonstrate his righteousness. It's a failure to live by and express his very essence and being. So what I want you to understand is the great conundrum created by sin. There's an unbelievable conundrum that's created by sin. The conundrum created by sin is how God demonstrates supreme regard for himself while still demonstrating love for his image bearers. How do you do it? Well, Paul gives us the answer. 
Propitiation. The cross. In the cross, God in effect says, I will express my own essence and being by demonstrating supreme regard for myself. How? Through death. The fact that God declares death to be the consequence of sin, keep in mind that was God's declaration. That wasn't an an, uh, inevitable result of some inanimate process. God declared death to be the consequence of sin. The fact that God declares death to be the consequence of sin demonstrates how utterly committed God is to maintaining a supreme regard for himself. Sin is all that which stands opposed to supreme regard for God. That's sin. God doesn't ignore it. Sin is confronted. It's punished. So sin being punished is simply a natural outworking of God expressing his own essence and being. So if God ignored sin, he would no longer be expressing his essence. If God ignored sin, he would no longer be God. So on the cross, God in effect says, I will love my image bearers. How? Through death of a perfect substitute. The climax, if you want to know the climax of God's love for you, it's the cross of Christ. So let me restate this concisely. In the cross, God demonstrates supreme regard for himself. How? Through death. In the cross, God demonstrates love for his image bearers. How? Through the death of a substitute. This is how, then, God is both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. God is just. God demonstrates supreme regard for himself by punishing all that's contrary to himself. God is justifier. God demonstrates love for his image bearers by punishing all that's contrary to himself through the death of a substitute. Might be a good time for just a brief aside. There's another Christian cliche that floats around our circles, and that is God loves human beings just the way we are. You, know, my, you probably picked up my dislike of Christian cliches. Um, <laughs> the Bible's more profound than to be able to sum it up with a tweetable cliche. Generally speaking, the Bible is a lot more profound than anything that can be captured in a tweet. Cliche is God loves, every, God loves human beings just the way we are. My response to that is both yes and no. God loves us just the way we are. Yes, God sends his son. God loves us just the way we are. No, God sends his son to 
die in our place. There's a problem. There's a problem, a significant problem. God loves us just the way we are? Yes, God sends his son. You don't have to clean up your act first. You don't have to work yourself up into a different state than what you are right now. God sends his son. God loves us just the way we are? No, because the way God finds us right now is unacceptable. Here's my feeble attempt at trying to summarize Romans 3, 21 to 26, and then we'll look at some practicalities to this. A summary of Romans 3, 21 to 26. All human beings fail the first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and as a result, put themselves under the just judgment of a holy God. But God has given us a gift that both preserves supreme regard for himself and demonstrates his love for his image bearers. Jesus, the propitiation for our justification and redemption. Thus by faith, sinful image bearers are brought into a right relationship with God. To say that Romans 3, 21 to 26 is a central teaching of the Christian faith I think a good case can be made for that. So let's look at justification specifically. Three points. We're going to ask three questions. Here we go. Why we need it, what it is, and how to get it. Justification. Why we need it, what it is, and how to get it. First, why we need it. Many of you know the name Hugo Chavez. He was the Venezuelan uh, socialist dictator He died of cancer at the age of 58. The head of the presidential guard was in the room with Chavez when when he breathed his last and reported that Chavez's last words were, I don't want to die. Please don't let me die. Those were his last words. While I'm no fan of those of Chavez's ilk, When I saw the story a few years ago, it was one of the saddest things I've ever read. If these words of desperation were his last, I can't imagine what the horror of his final moments were like. And why? Why did Chavez say this? Why was this his mindset? We can only speculate I don't think it's unreasonable to conclude what he thought he had in this life was far better than what awaited him. In other words, he knew there was something wrong with him. And in the deepest part of him, he knew he was about to find out what that was. Every human being that has ever lived lived with a nagging sense that there's something wrong with us. We have devised clever ways to attempt to cover that up, but our cover-up attempts never get rid of it. Some of us try to cover it up through physical beauty, but we always go to bed at night knowing there's something wrong with us. 
We can try to cover it up through professional accomplishments, but when the work week is over, we still live with this nagging suspicion that there's something not quite right. We can try to cover it up through charity, whether in money or time, but after the check is cleared or the volunteer hours are over, we're still bothered at times that something is just off. This is a universal human experience. Franz Kafka was one of the brilliant and bizarre writers of the 20th century. And he explores this problem in a book he wrote called The Trial. Joseph K. is the main character and he's having a relatively normal life when out of the blue he's arrested and taken into custody. But nobody tells him what he did wrong. He keeps asking, what have I been arrested for? What have I been accused of? He's not told. He's moved from one prison cell to another, then then one hearing to another, but he's never told what he did wrong. And he puzzles over this his whole life. Maybe it was for that. I did do that. Maybe that was the reason. Maybe this is the reason I've been been in, in prison. But he never finds out. In fact, at the end of the story, one of the prison wardens stabs him and he dies. In one of his diaries, Kafka says something that many have taken to be the theme of the trial. He writes, the state in which we find ourselves is sinful, quite independent of guilt. In other words, he's saying more and more people don't believe in judgment, don't believe in sin, and yet have this eerie feeling that there's something wrong with us. We all have an inescapable sense that if we were to be examined, we would be rejected. We have a, we have a deep sense uh, that we need to control what people know about us. Secretly, none of us feels as though we're acceptable. This is precisely what Paul is pounding the desk to get across to us. None is righteous. No one is acceptable. Why? Not because we've violated some arbitrary moral code, but we violated the very person of God. See, normally we think of sin as breaking a few rules. The Ten Commandments, they always pop up. Sin is breaking the rules. But as we look at the Ten Commandments, we need to remember these are not arbitrary. God didn't select these randomly. He wasn't bored one day and decided he would generate an eclectic to-do list. The Ten Commandments are an expression of his very essence and being. The moral code of the scriptures are a natural outworking of the character of God. So when I sin, I don't merely break a moral code. I offend a person. And that person is the eternal creator God. And offending this person is the reason I live with this nagging suspicion that I'm not acceptable. But if you want to be acceptable, if you want to shed this eerie feeling, what you're longing for is justification. This is why we need it. So what is it? What is justification? Look again at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. 
In the original language, righteousness and justification come from the same Greek word. I'm about to break every preaching rule. Uh, I'm about to break the fundamental preaching rule I was told never to do in, in preaching class after preaching class in seminary. Okay, we're going to learn Greek together. We did Latin a few weeks ago. I, you know, might as well do Greek. We're halfway there already. All right. So what you see, <laughs> first word up there is dikaiosune. Dikaiosune. Can you say that with me? Dikaiosune. Make sure you get the emphasis on that. Ooh, dikaiosune. Dikaiosune. Second word is dikaiao. Dikaiao. Say it. Dikaiao. Dikaiosune. Dikaiao. Do you hear the similarities there? Those are the words that were used in the passage that we're reading. Whenever you see the word righteousness, it's the word dikaiosune. Whenever you hear the word, see the word justified, it's dikaiao. These two words aren't just siblings, they're fraternal twins. They're fraternal twins. You could rewrite the verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are righteous by his grace as a gift. The gift of righteousness. What happens when God gives you his righteousness? You are justified. Which means you're righteous. Which means God makes a judgment about you. And he declares you guilt-free. He declares you acceptable to him. You no longer live In Kafka's The Trial, you know your status. I've illustrated the concept of justification like this several times since coming here four years ago. I shall do it again. When you want to be accepted at a place of employment, you give that potential employer, something you hope will cause them to accept you as an employee. What is that thing you give them? A resume. Let's change the word a little bit. You give them a validating performance record. VPR. You give them a VPR. Validating performance record. Record. So when you apply for a job, you put together a validating performance record, a resume. You send that off to your potential new employer as a way of saying to them, this document tells you why I should be acceptable to you. That's what you're saying. Validating performance record. Take a look at that. This is why, employer, I should be acceptable to you. Do the same thing when you want to get into college or graduate school. You send it off. Transcript. This is why. This is why I should be acceptable to you. 
We need one. We need a validating performance record to be accepted by God as well. Now, most people think that they live a good life, moral life. Their validating performance record will be good enough to gain them God's acceptance. But that's not what the passage is teaching. The core teaching of the Christian faith is saying that's not how it works. This passage is saying Jesus puts together a validating performance record of his own, which is righteous and holy, and then he offers his own validating performance record to you as a gift. It's grace. So here's the question. Are you holding in your hands Jesus' validating performance record? Are you holding it in your hands? Has God given you his righteousness? You might say yes, and it's pure joy to have received it. I no longer live as I once did with this eerie feeling that something is wrong with me because I have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Or you might say, I don't know if I have. I don't know if I have. I don't know if I have Jesus' validating performance record. I don't know if I've received the gift of God's righteousness. How do I find out? Well, let's answer that question. How do you get it? How do you get it? Verse 22, we're told the righteousness of God comes to us through faith for all who believe. So how do you receive the gift of God's righteousness? Through faith. How do you get to hold in your hands Jesus' validating performance record? Through faith. Through faith. That's it. And what is faith? (laughs) In my view, faith is one of the trickiest biblical truths to convey to modern people. Now, the book of James tells us that even the demons possess a certain kind of faith, but clearly not a faith that results in them receiving the righteousness of God. So what kind of faith results in receiving Jesus' validating performance record? In order to see what faith is, we're going to turn to a story in the Gospels that contains Jesus' stamp of approval on genuine faith. Flip over to Luke 7. And as you do, keep in mind Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, and the Apostle Paul, who wrote our passage in Romans 3, were ministry partners. Luke traveled with Paul. They were on a ship together for days, maybe weeks. They spent a lot of time together. I'm sure they were comparing notes along the way. Here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice something at the outset. Everything this woman does, we're going to start in verse 36, Luke 7, verse 36. Everything this woman does before verse 50, Jesus labels as an unspoken confession of faith. We might think of faith as something professed with the mouth or even simply agreed to in the mind. This scene is showing us there's more to it than just words. 
There's more to faith than just intellectually agreeing to something. And at the end of the story, look at what Jesus says. He says to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He sums up what he saw this woman do in a single word. Faith. So let's look at it. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, most likely, this woman was a prostitute. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she's about to enter this house. Now, think about the awkwardness of this. The discomfort level. The strangeness of a prostitute darkening the doors of a religious leader's home. So in order to get to Jesus, she's putting herself in a position to suffer through potential social derision. But genuine faith pushes through cultural awkwardness if it means meeting and spending time with Jesus, praying in public, studying the scriptures on the airplane, talking about Jesus in the coffee shop. Genuine faith pushes through cultural awkwardness if it means meeting and spending time with Jesus. She brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, for a woman in her profession, an alabaster flask of ointment would have been a necessity. Sweet-smelling aromas are good for business when you're a prostitute. The problem is perfume was incredibly expensive in this day. Incredibly expensive. For her to use it on Jesus, anointing his feet, is both an expression of radical generosity and perhaps an indicator that she's leaving her old life behind. She's saying, in effect, the the use I had of this, I no longer need anymore. Her entire life direction is shifting. The actions that she takes with Jesus are one of the most vivid displays of devotion in all the scriptures. And after she gets done, Jesus' commentary on all of this, on all that she has done, is that this is an unspoken confession of faith. It's Jesus who inserts that language. Look at it, verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So before the scene unfolds, this woman does not have the gift of God's righteousness. The righteousness of God had not been given to her after she's declared forgiven, righteous by extension. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is the means by which we receive Jesus' validating performance record. But faith is more than intellectually understanding something or intellectually agreeing to something. 
Jonathan Edwards illustrated the difference between real faith and bogus faith like this. He said, imagine you've never tasted honey before. Imagine you've never tasted honey before. Uh, But you have a friend who has. And that friend writes for you a 10-page paper describing what honey tastes like. So by the end of reading the paper, you'd be able to ace the test on what honey tastes like. The problem is, the taste of honey is something only theoretical to you. Its sweetness has not been impressed on your heart. Edward says, faith is tasting honey. It's tasting honey. Not just describing what it tastes like. Faith is when the reality of Jesus has been so deeply impressed on your heart, you live with a different kind of relationship to him. This kind of faith is the means by which we receive Jesus' validating performance record. Do you have the righteousness of God? Do you hold in your hands Jesus' validating performance record? Has the sweetness of Jesus been impressed on your heart? Let's pray. Father, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The only thing, Father, we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And so we marvel at your mercy that does not wipe out rebels. We stand amazed at your grace, which offers sinners Jesus' righteousness. And Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the astonishing gift you've offered us. For on that day when Christ appears, may we all in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, and faultless stand before the throne. May it be true. We ask through Christ our Savior. Amen.